If you were anything like me growing up, you may have thought that Advent was just another name for Christmas. But in fact, Advent is its own separate season leading up to Christmas. Throughout history, there was something called the church calendar. And as the church calendar developed, Advent was the mark of the new year. So throughout history, this was the beginning of the year for Christians across the world. And they did so because Advent means the coming or the arrival. And it begins the year with a season of waiting. Not because waiting is any fun, but because waiting actually does something profound to us. It shapes our expectations and our anticipation of what's coming. It refines our desires and helps us see what truly matters. So in the season, the Christmas lights are up, the trees are out, the music is blaring. Everywhere you go is jam-packed. And as a result, everybody is cranky and on edge. Anyone else notice that? Just getting to the simple grocery store, even on a weekday, is a brand new experience during this season. But Advent was meant to shape our longings. Is there something in your life that you can think of that you waited for, and you waited for, and you waited for, and then when you finally received it, it was so much better than you had anticipated that all the waiting just fell off into the background? We've all had the opposite experience, I'm sure, where something didn't live up to our expectations. But maybe it was, maybe it was some restaurant, maybe it was a vacation, maybe it was a Christmas present, maybe it was a spouse, children, whatever it is, there's things in our lives that we waited for, we waited for, and when it finally came, the reality of it was so much better than we imagined. And this is what this season is meant to do for us is for us to reflect upon the incarnation, the coming of Jesus, reflect on his first coming as well as shape our expectations and our anticipation for his second arrival. Because we know that the reality of that will be so much better than anything we could imagine or describe. So this is what we are going to unpack this morning. Over the last two weeks, Todd preached the the first week about God with us, Emmanuel, and the reality that God has always been present with us. And then last week he talked about waiting, and this morning as we continue on in our series, we are going to explore what is the outcome of that waiting? What do we receive as a result of this waiting? So this morning we will be in John chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, you are invited to turn there with me now, or you can follow the words up on the screen, but as you turn there... Let me pray for us. Most merciful Father, receive our deepest gratitude that you did not allow us to be eternally separated from you. Instead, in your great mercy, you descended to us in your Son, Emmanuel, that we would be fully reconciled to you and granted not just the unimaginable gift of seeing your beautiful face, but also the invitation to be continually filled with your Spirit, who is living joy, continually poured out for us and for the world. Amen. John 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was a Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. 
And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. We can all go home now. This is one of the most powerful and potent and poetic pieces of Scripture. I think some of the most powerful and potent words ever uttered, actually. Dissimilar to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John doesn't waste any time in explaining who Jesus is. He makes no secret of what he believes to be true about Jesus and offers that up to us. There's no easing into this story. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. What John is doing here is he is establishing that Jesus was Himself God. Unlike you and I, when He came into the world, that wasn't the beginning of His existence, but He existed eternally with the Father, and was there at creation, and everything was made through him. This is showing his transcendence, his great and unimaginable, unexplainable power. As I said, I'm not going to preach this entire passage today because you all do want to go home, and that's okay. We get hungry. But I do want to point out a few things. As a standalone section of Scripture, this is one of the best. But one of the amazing things as I studied it was how much it points back to the Old Testament. We see this right away in the first words, in the beginning was the Word. And it takes us back all the way to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how did he create all of these things? He did so by words, by speaking. So John is connecting Jesus to the beginning, to the creation story. He'll unfold this all throughout his letter, but especially in these themes of light and darkness. But as we move forward, he doesn't just sit in Genesis. He actually takes us to the Exodus. So he puts Jesus into the creation story, and then he moves Jesus into the Exodus story. So in verse 14, and this is where we're going to camp today, he says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
in this short sentence, he picks up on three major themes from the Exodus. So not only was Jesus there at creation, but Jesus is the one re-encapsulating the move towards freedom that God offers to us. The first part is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word here is actually tabernacled, or he pitched his tent among us. And what John is trying to say is that in the Old Testament, as the Israelites were moving out of Egypt into the promised land after Moses had set them free, they had the tabernacle. They, God gave them the instructions to build this mobile temple that eventually became the permanent temple when they resided in Jerusalem. But for a long period of time, they had this mobile temple, the tabernacle. And this was a place where God's presence dwelled. We unpacked all the magnificent detail that went into the construction of this temple back in June on Pentecost Sunday. But here, John is saying that this temple, that this place where God's presence dwelled, is now residing within Jesus. Listen to this dialogue between Moses and the Lord and the significance of God's presence dwelling with them. Actually, in this passage, uh, God's pretty angry with his people, and Moses comes and actually jumps to their defense a little bit. And Moses tells God, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't, don't take us to the promised land. Just leave us here. And so God responds to him, and he says, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses replies to God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Just leave us right where we're at, if your presence isn't going to travel with us. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct? I and your people from every people on the face of the earth? This was their defining identity. God's presence with the Israelites was what defined them as a people and set them apart. And now that presence dwells in Jesus, Emmanuel, is what John wants us to pick up here. The second part, as we continue on in the Exodus story, in the same section, after this bold request of Moses, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't take us up from here. He moves on and says, If I found favor in your sight, you granted me this request. If I have found favor, show me your glory, Lord. God responds to him, I can't show you my full glory, for you shall surely die. But here's what I will do, because you have found favor in my sight. I will set you in a cleft of the rock, and I will pass by you, and you will see my backside, you will see part of my arm, and you will see a portion of my glory. So God does this. And then when the tabernacle is complete, the glory of the Lord does dwell. It descends upon the tabernacle. And his presence is so strong that not even Moses could enter into this. This is God's glory, his unimaginable glory that Moses couldn't see without dying. And again, John is saying, this now resides in Jesus, whom we have seen. We beheld the glory of God in his son, Jesus, coming here on earth. And the final part of this, the third connection he presents to this is, he is full of grace and truth. We may think of those two words as dichotomistic of two sides of the same coin. You have grace over here, you have truth over here. Actually, in this passage, truth speaks more to God's reliability or trustworthiness than just truth as this hard-defined doctrinal term. It speaks more of his reliability. 
And what he's doing here, again, is connecting us back to the Exodus story by showing who God's character is. The Old Testament words were for faithfulness and steadfastness. As God passes by, not only does Moses glimpse his glory, but God's glory was revealed in his character as he passes by. He says, The Lord is the Lord, a a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This last part, steadfast love and faithfulness, this word that Todd unpacked last week, chesed, which was you can trust in God's going to do in the future because of what we have seen him do in the past. This is his covenant faithfulness. And this word truth here is speaking to that covenant faithfulness, his graciousness, or his gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and his trustworthiness, his truth, that He, we can rely upon this because of his steadfast love and faithfulness for us. John is summing up the most potent parts of the Exodus story and recapitulating them in the coming of Jesus as one of us. His presence, his glory, and his gracious, steadfast love, the reality that God has always been with us, is now most powerfully manifested in a person. Eugene Peterson writes that birth, every human birth, is an occasion for local wonder. We've had a lot of births here at Sierra Grace this year, and I can say with much delight that every one of them is a local wonder for us as a community. It is so amazing to see parents bring their children in this morning, to see Thomas and Heidi bring Riley up here on stage this morning as they read the Christmas story to us. It truly is an occasion for local wonder. And yet Peterson goes on to say, in Jesus' birth, the wonder is extrapolated across the screen of all creation, all history, as a God birth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us moved into our neighborhood, so to speak. Incarnation, fleshment, God in human form through Jesus entering into our history. This is a miracle. This is an amazing miracle that we're just left to wonder at. And yet as I thought about this, and you may be like me, I've sometimes wondered, why did God choose to do it this way? Of all the ways that might be at his disposal, why did God choose such a harsh and painful and suffering way to redeem humanity. Has anyone else ever wondered that? A couple of us? Uh, I've heard preachers say that God was bound to do it this way because of all the laws he'd given, because of the prophecies and all of this, that God had to, this was the only way out, or the only way for Jesus, for God to redeem humanity was to send his son. I'm not personally convinced of that. If God is truly God, I'm pretty sure that he had an infinite number of ways at his disposal to redeem us as his humans. And I'm not sure that I would have done it that way, which is a good thing because I'm not God. Uh, But if we think about it, this is an interesting way to come not just as a human, but as a child, dependent upon others for our mere survival, to have to learn the language, to be subject to all the constraints and frustrations and pain, and then to die a death on the cross. Could there have been another way? In theological terms, there are two attributes that we often ascribe to God. The first is his transcendence, which speaks of his power. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. This speaks of God's cosmic reality, His power, and which He saves us through. But there's this other word called imminence, which speaks of His nearness. And this passage highlights both, but as we zoom in on verse 14, He came and He dwelt among us. This shows His imminence. He didn't save us from afar but he saved us from being near. He saved us from the end, from within humanity. God could have easily been sitting up there on his throne in heaven and looking at the other members of the Trinity and said, well, there's humanity. They've got themselves into a real mess again. Should we have pity on them? Should we save them? What do you think? Yeah? Yeah? Okay, let's do it. And he decides that he's going to save us. And he looks down upon earth and he just goes, voila, you guys are redeemed. This seems perfectly within his capacity. And yet, through his eminence, through the incarnation, he communicates those three attributes so amazingly to us. That if he had just snapped his fingers and redeemed humanity, that would have shown his transcendence. But by sending his son, it showed his presence. It showed God with us. It showed his steadfast love and his faithfulness to us. It showed his glory still residing within Jesus. It showed that his character was true and faithful by doing it this way. The author of Hebrews says it is fitting, not because he was specifically bound to it, but because it fit. It fit with who he was. It fit with how he had created the world. It fit with the redemptive story that he was enacting throughout all of history. And it was most powerfully manifested in his son. And this shows a great reversal, this great exchange. If we think about it, humanity has always, in some form or another, sought to be gods. This started all the way back in the garden with Adam and Eve and Satan comes to Adam and Eve and says, if you eat of this tree, you will surely become like God. And ever since they took that bite, we have attempted this in some form or fashion. I think back to all the Indiana Jones movies that are quite incredible, but in them, every single one of them is a quest to gain some artifact, something that makes people like gods. The fountain of youth, the great power within the ark, all of these things were so that... Usually the bad guys would become more like gods and they could become powerful and rule the world. But in the great exchange, as Athanasius says, Jesus became like us. Jesus became like us that you and I might become more like him. Rather than us attaining and seeking to become higher and above and to become like gods, God humbled himself and became like us. This is truly, truly magnificent. As I continue to think about the incarnation, what that means for us, what it meant for him to save through his steadfast love for us, through his nearness, one of the implications is that he enters into our suffering and he enters into our brokenness. In that passage in Hebrews where it says it was fitting, it says it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And going on, he says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise 
partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. In his coming, in his carnation, in his dwelling among us, he would enter into our own suffering and brokenness. He doesn't stay disconnected and distant from it, but he actually steps right into it. The author of Hebrews later says that as a result, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with us, but knows exactly what we are going through. While the holidays are supposed to be full of joy and excitement, they can also be one of the hardest seasons for many of us. The season can be lonely, and it can be full of pain. We are reminded of the loss of loved ones who aren't with us in this season. Some of us are physically or relationally far from family. The holidays are a reminder of our own brokenness and our own suffering. All the advertisements and all the music try to tell us otherwise and try to slap a band-aid on it. And as we look at Jesus coming and dwelling among us, we see a God who isn't distant from all that, but who enters in and walks alongside of us in each of our experiences both the joys as well as the sorrows. In coming as one of us, Jesus reveals his closeness in the midst of those. Not that he snaps his fingers and makes them magically go away, but that he walks alongside of us even as we hope that one day all things will be made right. He mourns with us. He deeply relates to our pain. He always has, but the incarnation has made that more real, more concrete as we saw how Jesus acted among the people that he encountered throughout his life. Our hope is that one day all of these things will be redeemed, but in the meantime, God walks alongside of us, Emmanuel. It is through this fullness that Jesus entered into humanity that we receive grace upon grace, or gift upon gift. That through Christ, you and I receive forgiveness. This is his grace. We receive freedom from sin and from the power of death. This is grace upon grace. We become the children of God, adopted as his own, co-heirs with Christ, and heirs of God. The presence of God going from residing within the tabernacle to residing within Jesus, and then to residing within us through his Holy Spirit. This is his grace. His Holy Spirit empowering us, walking alongside of us, comforting us in our trials and our tribulations. We receive his joy, his love, his hope. All of this is his grace. We receive eternal life, but even more than eternal life, it is eternal life with God. That we would dwell with him because he dwelt with us. Friends, this is his grace and it is all ours through his fullness in him coming and dwelling among us in the incarnation. As I was studying this sermon, I was convicted by God's presence, not just here with me, but how he is fully present to each one of us all the time in a way that escapes our explanation. He went to extreme measures to show this. His presence is one of the greatest gifts that you and I will ever receive. What is eternity if we don't get to spend it with God? As I thought about the implications for us, I sense an invitation for us to be present to one another, 
The season is full of frantically running about trying to get all of our Christmas presents. And it's just a busy season. People, as I said earlier, are on edge and cranky. And this is a season where we often are not fully present to the person in front of us. A few weeks ago, our small group went and saw a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Anyone see that movie? Second plug of the day, so listen to Andrew Peterson and go and see this movie. This movie is about Mr. Rogers and Tom Hanks plays Mr. Rogers. I'm not going to give away anything that will be spoiling it for you. But go and see this movie. As we watched this movie, one of the things I was struck by... I had heard this about Mr. Rogers, but just so enacted so well, was that he sought to be fully, 100% present to whatever was right in front of him. And this was especially true of people. And as he sought to be fully present to them, it became transforming, not just for him, but for the person that he was sitting across from, the person that was right there as his eyes locked theirs, as he listened to their stories, as he listened to their pains, as he listened underneath the surface of what was going on. This was transformative in their lives. This is God's presence with us. But it's also, through his Holy Spirit, an invitation for us to be fully present to one another in this season in that same way. God's presence is one of the greatest gifts that we could receive perhaps one of the greatest gifts we could turn back out to the people around us is that very same gift of presence. This morning, we're going to commemorate and encounter that most powerful act of presence by coming to the Lord's table. As Jesus became flesh and blood, we're going to partake of the bread and the cup, commemorating that reality, that wonderful truth that God became like us in this season. Let's bow our heads and pray. Let's take a few moments personally to soak in this wonderful mystery that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Take a moment or two and silently pray about how you might be more present to those around you as a result of God's presence. As we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table, let's pray this prayer of confession that will be up on the screen together. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. 
Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. What Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, I proclaim to you. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken this away, nailing it to the cross. In a few moments after I pray over the elements and read from 1 Corinthians You may begin filing row by row out into the center aisle and to come up front. There will be four stations up here and one up in the balcony. The station on the furthest left will be gluten-free. You are all welcome to go through that line, but if you are gluten-free, you especially want to find that line. And as you come up to receive the bread and the cup, you may tear off a piece of bread and then dip it in the cup. You may take it right there or you may go back to your seats to pray and then take it when you are ready. The table is open to everyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. If that is not you today, we want to say that we are very glad that you are here. I invite you to file out with your row so that people don't have to step over you. Just politely decline. But if this is an opportunity where you would like to give your life to the Lord, those who are serving communion will be up front and available after serving communion to pray with you. And they would love to pray with you, either about that or anything else that might be going on in your life. They would be delighted to pray alongside of you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after, after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your steadfast and measurable love for us. We thank you that you communicated your grace, your glory, your presence, your steadfast love in coming and dwelling among us and living as one of us. The gift of all gifts that we humbly receive. As we come to your table, may we encounter that love in a powerful way. By the power of your Holy Spirit, let us see you more clearly and recognize your great love for us. For your glory, amen.